Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. In John's Gospel, chapter 2, there is a sobering account of many who came to believe into Christ because they saw the signs and the wonders which he performed. From the human perspective, you would say, this is a good thing because Jesus showed up and Jesus showed off. He did his thing. And as a result, many now believe. And we would applaud that and say, this is wonderful. There are many believers now in Jesus. But verse 24 of chapter 2 states this remarkable truth that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was within them. From the divine perspective, something was amiss. There was some ambition, some motivation, there was some agenda or some purpose within those believers that did not sit right with Jesus. And as a result, they could not receive his truest heart of all hearts. They couldn't receive intimacy with him. He did not entrust perhaps his purpose and his mind and the deep things of God to them. Why? Because something was just a little bit off. Somehow, man looks on the outward appearance. Wow, look at all these followers. But God looks on the inward, and he's looking for something deep within a man that lets him know he can trust you. He can disclose himself to you, and he can welcome you into the depths of his being. Because you're really not for yourself. You are really for the Lord. I submit to you in John's Gospel, chapter 2, The reason they believed into Christ was because he could possibly aid them in their ambition. He could be an add-on to their purposes. He could perhaps be some miracle worker, some wonder worker to have them fulfill their desires. No, they were not really seeking his will. They were not really in love with him. It was still mostly about themselves. And let me ask you this question. Why are you following Christ? Why are you believing into him? Is it because you really want him? Or could it be that Christ is just another addition to your own ambition, to your own will, to your own agenda? Well, that's what John chapter 2 is all about. And Today, I want to press this matter just a little bit further. Why are you following your Lord? This selfish, carnal, human ambition 
to have God as an add-on to my predetermined purposes is very prevalent throughout all of mankind. And we see even such an example in the life of Abraham. When God appeared to him in Genesis 15, he was still called Abram at that time. And the Lord was wanting to make a covenant with him. And it says in verse 1 that the word of the Lord came to Abram and he said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram. I, Yahweh, I am your shield. I'm the one who will protect you. And I am your exceedingly great reward. In other words, it's all about God. If you've got God, you're going to be okay, Abram. And then again here you see in verse 2 the mindset of man. Abram says to the Lord, What will you give me, seeing that I go childless? God, what can you do for me? What was on Abraham's mind at that time was the fact that he was without an heir. And so his interaction with God was basically a, a, a bargaining with God. God, do something for me. It's about me. It's about my name. It's about my posterity. And the Lord just spoke to him and said, Abraham, or at least Abram at that time, you're going to be okay. Can I ask you, why do you serve God? Is it because what He can do for you, that is, give you heaven, give you bliss, give you prosperity? Or will you still serve Him and Him only if He doesn't make sense? He's illogical. You don't understand His ways. When there's mystery surrounding God, will you still love Him? Will you still serve Him? Or is God just a kind of an addition to your motivation? to your agenda, to your ambitious pursuit to have a name, have fame, have prosperity, have honor. We have in Proverbs chapter 20 a remarkable verse. Verse 27, it says that the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord. And God searches the inmost parts of the inner being of man. Apparently, when God looks upon a man, he looks deep within the core of that man, where your spirit that represents your being shines before the Lord and it enlightens your inner man. And so God looks upon your inner man and he's trying to see there Are you really for God or for yourself? And so man may say one thing. Man may raise his hand and say, I believe. Man may even have some kind of a pseudo-obedience, some kind of a form of godliness. But God looks upon the heart. God looks upon the inward man, just like Jesus did in John's Gospel, chapter 2. Somehow the inward condition of those men were shining before God. And God saw that the light within them, revealing the core of their being, that light was really not for God. The agenda was for self. And so the Lord rejected those folk in John chapter 2. You can also see 
in Psalms 139, a marvelous verse, verse 23, where the psalmist cries out, O God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any harmful or wicked way within me. This is the psalmist at his truest best, most raw, most real before God. Father, search me. Apparently, the heart of man is deceitful. Jeremiah hints at that in chapter 17, verse 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. That inward man has agendas. And Jeremiah asks this question, who can know it? In verse 10, it says, I, Yahweh, search the heart, and I test the inward parts of man. Apparently, God looks to the inward condition of a man. Now, you and I, we can look at the surface condition of a man. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul would say that no man can really know what's in the heart of another man. It's obscure from the human eye. Only God can search the heart. And so, beloved, when it comes to walking with God, I'm not sure the Lord initially looks at our great works. I'm not sure the Lord initially looks at our sacrificial obedience because there's many of us that can obey God for selfish gain. We, uh, in a way, 1 Corinthians 13 would say, we could even give our bodies to be burned, but we don't really have love. We can manifest all sorts of giftings, and we can do good, but there's always a hidden agenda. And this is where the Lord comes to deal with His people. Why? Because He wants to entrust Himself to you. There's something in God that He withholds from us until He looks deep within the core of your being, and there's a shining of purity and genuineness. And there are no mixed agendas. Beloved, can I ask you, why are you serving God? Is it just so that you can go to heaven? Just so that you can prosper? Just so that you can never get sick? Or will you really serve God? Because He is your reward. It's not about heaven. It's not about a mansion. It's not about a palace. It's about Him, His heart, His will, His interest, His agenda. David hints at this in Psalm 51, where he says in verse 6, Behold, you delight for there to be truth in the inward parts of a man. God loves it, apparently, when we can be real and genuine and authentic before God in our inner man. Can I ask you, why are you serving God? Why are you doing Bible study? Why are you preaching and teaching? What is your agenda? In Philippians chapter 1, Paul speaks to the fact that there are those who preach Christ with alternative agendas. Philippians 1 verse 15, Some preach Christ 
because of envy and strife. In other words, they're jealous of other people preaching Christ, so I'm going to preach Christ because I'm in competition with a Peter or a Paul or an Apollos. And they are in contention. There's strife between the, the ministers of the gospel. He goes on to say in verse 17 of Philippians 1, But others announce Christ out of selfish ambition. That is, Christ benefits them. They're not really building the house of God. They're not really building the name and the renown of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus the Christ. They want to build a name for themselves. There is selfish ambition. That's what happened in John's Gospel, chapter 2. There were those who believed into Jesus because probably they could use him for political gain. Maybe the fact that he can perform signs and wonders, he can be some traveling road show for them to impress people and to show off. And Whatever their agendas were, Christ did not commit himself to them. There was something just a little bit off. We have another account in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 21 where Jesus said that not everyone who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of the heavens, but only those who do the will of my Father. Here you see what it's really all about. Will you do the will of the Father, or will you use God to still achieve your own will, your own heart's desire, your own pleasure? However, you may manipulate it in the disguise of Christ. Paul would say there are those who use Jesus for selfish ambition. And so, in Matthew 7, verse 22, those folk will say to the Lord, Jesus, was it not in your name that we prophesied? Was it not in your name that we cast out demons? Was it not in your name that we did works of power? I find it interesting that there are three categories mentioned here. Prophesying, the casting out of demons, which we might call deliverance ministry, and the works of power, which would definitely include the miraculous, the spectacular, the sensational, the supernatural. In our day, in our modern Christian era, I have noticed how folk really don't care for Christ. They care to be known as a prophet. They care to be known as somebody who can predict the future or read another person's mail. And they love to even be called prophet so-and-so. I've also noticed in our day how so many of us don't really care for Christ. We care to be known as deliverance ministers. I have noticed a trend within the, the, the body of Christ where it's, it's more about me being personally delivered and cleansed than it is about Christ. And of course, man is to be delivered. Man is to be cleansed. But I, I want to say to you, Jesus would say to these folk here in a minute, depart from me. 
even if you were able to deliver people and heal people, I don't know you. And I submit to you that so many of us don't really lead people to Jesus. We lead them to methods and formulas for self-improvement and feeling better about ourselves. You see, Jesus is an add-on to me. In the end, it's still about me. You also see here another category of those who do signs and wonders and works of power. I find it amazing how so many of us just, this is where we fixate our attention. I got to do signs. I got to do power. And it's, it's, it's less about the person of, of, of Christ. And it's more about me, somebody. Could you please notice me, that I'm a person who prays, that I'm a person who um, performs signs and wonders? Jesus would say to these folk, perhaps with their ill motives and their alternative agendas and ambitions, he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Some translations would say, you workers of lawlessness. Which brings me to this question, how can prophecy be iniquity? How can casting out devils and demons and delivering people, how can freedom ministry be iniquitous? How can signs and wonders and the supernatural and the miraculous... How can it be iniquitous? Well, from the human perspective, we would say this is good to prophesy. This is wonderful to facilitate freedom and deliverance. From the human perspective, we would say signs and wonders, this is it. But then again, in the days of Israel coming out of Egypt, God performed many works of powers, many signs, many wonders. And yet, most of those Israelites only served God because he could do something for them. They weren't really caring for God. In John 2, they saw the signs, they saw the wonders, but they really didn't care for Jesus. See, they needed Jesus for their own cause. So, how can signs and wonders be iniquity? Well, it's not the prophecy that's iniquitous. It's not the deliverance that's iniquitous. It's not the sign and the wonder it's the lamp that's within a man shining the agendas and the alternative motives of your heart. That's what's the problem. That's the lawlessness. Why? Because you want to do these things for your name, your renown, independent of God. Again, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you might even speak in tongues. You might perform great signs and wonders and Give away everything you own, but really it's for you to be noticed. God would say, depart from me. That is lawlessness. We have another example in Matthew 16, where Jesus reveals to the disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem and that he will have to suffer from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and that he will have to be killed but on the third day he will be raised again in other words he entrusts to the disciples what it's all about he discloses to them the purposes of god that the son of man must go to jerusalem and be crucified 
And so he lets them in on the agenda and the will of God. But in Matthew 16, verse 22, Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. From the divine perspective, Jesus just entrusted his heart to the disciples and he lets them in on God's agenda. But from Peter's perspective, from the disciples' perspective, they they see that their hero, their miracle worker, their rabbi, if he is to be killed, that in a way would stop their movement. So Peter stops Jesus. In fact, he rebukes him. And he resists the purposes of God. Why? Because Peter has an agenda. Peter says to him, God, be merciful to you, Lord. This shall by no means happen to you. And here you see the tension between the will of God, crucifixion, suffering, and the will of Peter is to keep Jesus safe, to hold on to your own dear life, to do it man's way. And Jesus seemingly showed no compassion to Peter's motives. He gave no thought to Peter's agenda. He just said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, Peter, because you are not mindful of the things of God, but you are only mindful of the things of man. That's what happened in John's Gospel, chapter 2. Those crowds in Jerusalem were only mindful towards their own ends. They weren't mindful of the things of God, and so Jesus did not entrust himself here. Jesus says, Peter, you're still thinking according to the natural man. You're holding on to your natural ambition, and in a way, you're stumbling me. You're offending me. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, and here it is, this this is it. This is spirituality 101. If you want to walk with me, if you want to follow and be intimate with me and see as I see, then you have to deny yourself. You have to deny your own agenda, ambition, your own pursuit, your own method and formula. And you have to take up your cross and follow me. Now, that is not a very popular word in modern Christianity, is to to die to yourself. In fact, most of us are trying to find ourselves. But Jesus sees into the core of your being and he scrutinizes and he sifts what really is your agenda. Because if you're after your own will, then it might as well be satanic because he spoke to Peter here such a strong word when he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Somehow Satan creeps in to the agendas of man. 
And there's always the twisting and the perverting and the manipulating. And this is devilish. Beloved, why are you serving God? Is it like Abram, just so God can give you something? God can give you a breakthrough, a miracle. God can give you that promotion. God is not against giving us a son or a daughter. God is not against giving you financial capability. God is not against the promotion. But if you walk with God only so that you can get, you're missing out on a great deal of the person of God. And that's the heart of this message. Are you a believer only in appearance or have you come into the knowing of God? Because Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, to know the Father and to know the Son. Believing into God is not just so that you can get. Believing into God is so that you can know Him and love Him and walk and serve and work with Him together. It's not about you. It really is about Him. And here's the most beautiful thing is that when you make it all about Him and you really care for His heart and for His interests in this earth, I can guarantee you and I can promise you, and I can even say this from my own experience, if you take care of a pure motive to just want God, God will take care of you. Seek first His kingdom. Seek first his righteousness, and everything will be added unto you. It's even a promise from Romans 8, verse 32. God will see to it that that anything that you need comes to you, but you got to take care of your will. Will you surrender and lay it down and say, Father, not my will, but your will be done? In Matthew 16, The disciples wanted to do their own will, not the will of the Father. Whose will are you really seeking? Generically speaking, there are three stratagems that a man can employ to maintain and even advance his own will. He can employ domination, intimidation, and manipulation. And I call this the dim spirit. And often, even believers employ the dim spirit, the dim ambition, the dim attitude in their relationship with God. But first, let's look at the natural. You'll see that for a man to hold on to his will, and even to advance his own ambition, his own cause, his own pursuit, he will have to dominate over another person. That is, belittle the other person, bully the other person, even beat the other person. You'll see that men will shake their fist. Men will raise their voice. And whatever it looks like on the peripheral, what's going on is that there's a battle for control. It is my will versus your will. And I need to control you, and I need to control the situation. Why? So that I can get my way. 
Another stratagem we employ to get our way is to intimidate another person. And often we parade our trophies in front of one another and our accomplishments and our titles. And the reason we do that is to basically show you that I have it together. I've arrived and, and obviously you have not. So if you can just do it my way, then uh, everything's going to be okay. At the heart of what's going on here is I still want to maintain control. I still want to maintain my will and even advance my will. Often, we will also manipulate other people. Why do we manipulate through lying and through conniving and through massaging the circumstance? And why are we doing that? Well, it's because in the end, I got to have it my way. I'd rather die than not have it my way. And so we employ the dim spirit. But often we do this with God also. In order to maintain my will, have it my way, I often have to dominate over God. That is, I tell Him what to do. I boss God around. In a way, I tell Him when to show up. I tell Him how to show up. I tell Him what and where and when and how and all of these many things. Bottom line is, my will has to prevail. We see the example there in Peter taking the Lord aside and rebuking him. And Peter was acting dominantly over Jesus. Jesus had a different will in a different way, in a different agenda. It clashed with Peter. And so to maintain control of the circumstance, to gain control over Christ, and to have Peter's will prevail, he had to rebuke Jesus. We do this with God. We rebuke God when he doesn't show up or show off or bring the breakthrough the way we need him to. And you see so many of us, we walk around being wounded by God. Why are you wounded by God? Well, he obviously didn't show up or show off the way that you dictated for him to. And this is an area where the Spirit of God will have to do a deep work within us, where we are not the teacher of God but we're the sons and daughters under his authority. For those of you who think you can boss God around, let me just ask you this. How's that going for you? This is not the economy of God. All power, all glory, all authority, all majesty, all honor belongs to him. He is the one that's dominant. We are subservient. Now, when it comes to intimidation, it's easy to intimidate people through our trophies and bragging. I, I see even in the body of Christ how we intimidate one another when we brag. I just fasted 40 days, prayed through the night. I, I just had a quiet time with God. Often these braggadocious spiritual trophies that we have is nothing more than a horse and pony show to intimidate you, to show off how spiritual I am. But of course, we don't have anything really to boast about before God. But I'll tell you what we do. Before God, we often play the intimidating card with God. That is, we're the victim. For instance, God may ask of you, Hey, son, hey, daughter, 
I need you to go minister to your neighbor, or I need you to speak here, or I need you to make that phone call, or write this book, or whatever the situation may be, God gives us a kind of an assignment, kind of like Gideon. God shows up and says, mighty man of valor that you are, I want to use you. Then we say, well, I'm not educated. Well, I'm not trained. Well, I don't have gifts. I'm not anointed. I'm not that good. And we make excuses, excuses, excuses. Why? We, we act as though we're intimidated by the assignment. What, why? It's so that I can maintain control. Because to obey the Spirit and to obey the anointing and to, to step out in faith, then that's going to cause me to lose control. I can't have that. I'm going to lose my will. No way. So often with God we would rather be the intimidated one, the victim. Oh, God, feel sorry for me, versus just step out in faith. Another area in God is that we often manipulate God. This is where we say to God, you know what, Lord, I will do this, I will do that. If you will do this or you will do that. This is where we will worship God so we can get an experience. I will obey God so I can get a blessing. The, the agenda is not really to please God. The agenda is, okay, begrudgingly, I'll do this, Lord. If, if you can just give me that, you know, gift, that breakthrough, that promotion, that blessing, that prosperity. There's always a string attached. That's the spirit of manipulation. That's the dim spirit dominating over God being intimidated, seemingly intimidated, and of course, being all cunning and crafty and conniving with God, manipulating Him. Why? So we can have it our way. Is there a dim spirit within you towards your spouse, your boss, your friends? Is there a dim spirit within you towards your Lord must you dictate for God how to do this? Must you play the victim card? Must you manipulate God and always have a string attached? I'm telling you, something is wrong in your motives with others and with God when there is a dim attitude present within your being. Beloved, I encourage you to call upon the Lord and invite the Holy Spirit to search the inward condition of your heart. Say, Lord, search me and see if there is something in me that dominates over others, and particularly before you. Lord, search me. Cause me to know where am I manipulative towards my spouse, towards others, and even towards the Lord. And I would invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to sift you, to sanctify you, and to cause you to come into a pure inner man in your relationship with God so that, bottom line, Christ can entrust more of himself to you.